Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. This morning's scripture, as we've been studying, is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Good morning. You know, I I love seeing all these tables out here, Um, mostly because that means food later. (laughs) It's kind of a nice setup, too. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning uh, that you're here, that you're present among us, Lord, that many of us have asked for you to come and live in our hearts and transform our lives and call us to you in glory, that you're speaking, that you're alive through your word, Lord, that you're going to work through this book and the scripture that you've left us. And Lord, uh, we pray that we could grow closer to you, Lord, to love you more and see you more throughout our service today, throughout our worship, throughout our Sunday school, and especially through our potluck. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Isn't it interesting? We live in a culture that of late seems to be uh, almost obsessed with what our hearts are saying, right? We have these sayings in our culture, these cultural aphorisms like, Follow your heart. You do you. YOLO. Let it go. Right? It might be fair to say we're a culture that looks to our passions for our identity more so than maybe almost any culture that's gone before us. Here's a couple quotes from famous people in our culture. Rihanna says, I always believe that when you follow your heart or your gut, when you really follow the things that feel great to you, you can never lose. (laughs) Preach. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Even Nelson Mandela, there's no passion to be found in playing small, in settling for a life that's less than what you're capable of. Now there's, the interesting about that is there's like seeds of truth in in a lot of those statements, but You know, a partial truth can be a whole lie if you're not careful. Yet no matter where you, what you think about those previous quotes, some of the, you have to agree that some of the most significant things in our life are actually connected to our passions, right? I mean, the fact that that we were born 
was connected to two people's passions, right? A child's early years of life are basically uncontrollable passion in doing whatever pleases them. And we're called to discipline them to make wiser choices. The teenage and adolescent years awaken a whole new sense of passion in that child. In adulthood, we get different cares and desires that we're passionate about. And yet, it's said of the aged that sometimes they are the ones who most burn with unmet desire. Scripture talks a lot about the heart. Let's define what we mean here about heart. The word here for heart is a word in Greek called cardia. It's where we get the root word cardiac and similar terms like that from. And the heart is spoken of over 800 times in Scripture, but it's not in reference to the biological organ in your chest that pumps blood. Throughout Scripture, as as well as in many languages and cultures throughout the world, the word heart is used metaphorically to represent the inner person, the motives and attitudes, and the center of our personality. My first point today is our lives are directed by our hearts. Our lives are directed by our hearts. The heart is what you are in the secrecy of your thoughts and feelings. That space that only God really knows, but he sometimes reveals to you. What you are in your heart is even more important than the things you can see or what others perceive about you. And the Bible has very clear warnings about how to keep and maintain your heart. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of water of life. See, those listening to Jesus when he read through these Beatitudes and he started talking about the heart would have understood this is an appeal to the inner person. They would have understood some semblance of the fact that we were meant to be products of our heart, to live alongside God, to love and worship him. The problem is, is that that tool which was made to help us navigate life throughout history has become broken. Our misdirected desires, if we're not careful, can overwhelm our holy ones, and our unrighteous passions can overwhelm our good. My second point is that we're called to have pure hearts. We're called to have pure hearts. The word for pure here is katharos. It's related to the word catharsis, or chaste. What's unique about Jesus' teaching is that it was was aimed at the hearts of men, that previous great teachers had focused on the outward behavior of men, but Jesus would focus on the heart. Philosophers from the ancient Greeks and Aristotle to Immanuel Kant would agree with some semblance of shaping the external moral behaviors. But Jesus aimed to cleanse the spring out of which all thoughts, words, and actions come. 
He has insisted that until your heart was pure, your life would never be clean. He didn't say, blessed are the pure in language or actions or ceremonies or, or food, but blessed are the pure in heart. Later in this same chapter, in, in Matthew, in this same book, in chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This is what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands... That doesn't defile you. The interesting thing about this verse is he's talking to the religious priests of the era. These men who had arguably the most honed in external behaviors and spiritual habits in the day. See, Jesus wasn't calling you just to live a moral life. He's effectively saying that even with an outwardly moral life, you stand not pure before God if you have an unclean heart. Jesus wouldn't be totally satisfied with a culture that eliminated adultery. He states that even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, your heart is guilty of adultery. He wouldn't be satisfied with a culture that just eliminates theft. He wants to eliminate covetousness. And if we repent to the Lord simply because of the consequences of sin, we're not repentant of our sin. We're just sad there's consequences. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Yet in our culture, it's very interesting that it's increasingly undesirable to talk about our hearts as wicked. And it's increasingly undesirable to be really committed to the thought of transforming your life in God. See, I can be passionate about all kinds of things in life. I can be passionate about sports. I can be passionate about movies. I can be a passionate wine lover. I can be passionate about adventure. But if you're passionate about God, like sold out for him, people think that's a little over the top. And in those cultural divides, in that temptation to want to have Jesus as something on the side to your life, as a nice little entree or a nice little appetizer for life amongst a buffet of things to involve yourself in, there's a temptation for the church to be double-minded about God, to be more passionate about the things of God than you are about God himself. Whether you hope God gives you a good life, protection, some financial security, or a wonderful spouse. We can treat Jesus like he's a fire insurance policy as we walk through life. 
One analogy that's been made is it's like a shopper at a mall, walking around life and seeing the things that I can be entertained with or that are interesting for my life. The man who is happy for the name of a Christian, being called a Christian, more than he is for the life of a Christian. Yet Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. My third point We can be tempted to transform our lives in the power of ourself. We can be tempted to try to transform our lives in the power of ourself. See, since the fall of man, there's been this great temptation to respond to sin by covering up our moral failures with a regiment of character formation, with good works, or flat out hiding the bad things we do. But ultimately, these habits that we had before our conversion to Christianity distort spiritual formation into nothing but a self-help program. Throughout the ages, the most common way to transform yourself, uh, a word I'll use here for that is called moral formation. Throughout the ages, moral formation has centered around changing your behavior in the areas that you sin. If you drink too much, stop drinking. If you smoke too much, stop smoking. If you have a potty mouth, wash your tongue out with soap. Proverbially, we do the same things with the lusts in our heart or our covetousness or our wrong-spent desires. I'm going to borrow a definition here from Dr. Steve Porter who says, moral formation is the temptation of our heart to want to perfect ourselves in the power of ourself. It is an attempt in the power of yourself to transform yourself, fix yourself, or rid yourself from guilt or shame in your own power. And we learn these habits from a very young age. When you're a little kid, you're taught just do the right thing, right? Behave well, stay out of trouble. Do the good, you'll go far in life. In fact, if you're quiet for an hour, mommy will give you a cookie. (laughs) Sometimes in life, we just want for the problem to be solved. We don't care in that moment whether or not we're doing business with the eternal creator. But that kind of attitude towards the Lord may work for a moment, but it's not going to be where you find transformation. See, virtue is a very difficult and time-consuming acquisition. It's difficult to go from someone who enjoys a bad habit and become someone who doesn't enjoy that bad habit. Let me just point out, the new year is coming, and our gyms will be packed with people with New Year's resolutions. And about six weeks later, I'll go back and my machines will be available again. (laughs) Because it's difficult to change yourself, even externally in the power of yourself. And to change the internal is impossible. If we're not careful, we can fall in this temptation to try to attain holiness through morality, to use some kind of Christian karma to try to get on God's good side so he gives me more good things. 
Like if I behave this week, there'll be a big wink and a nod from the big guy upstairs and maybe he'll help me out with some things. We can even attempt to use Christian things, good Christian things, like being good, prayer, volunteering, mission, or even ministry to try to relieve the burden we feel from sin and to try to get on the good side of God. This lapse into moralism, or what we'd call moral formation, is present in any attempts to perfect yourself in the power of your flesh. See, while all of those things are good things and God calls us to do good things, He calls us to do good things so that we can open up to Him, and those fruits are a response to His work in our life. They are in and of themselves not the Christian faith. One ability God did not give us was the ability to deal with our own sin. We can try to cover that by being really nice or important or successful or come to a ton of church meetings But the love of God is going to have to penetrate those activities and those attitudes. And that will make you feel a deeper sense of weakness and neediness for him. The Bible tells us power is perfected in weakness. But to be honest, in places in our life, we don't believe that. We believe power is perfected in power. Power is perfected in individuality. Power is perfected in do your own thing and live your own life and follow your passions. That if you model those virtues, you're enabled and empowered to transform yourself. And if you're not careful, you may seek holiness through morality. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Verse 9, he said, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Thank the Lord. Those extortioners or unjust, the adulterers, or even like this guy, the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I tell you, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that an interesting note? Who was easier to win into the kingdom? The Pharisee, the righteous priest, or the dreg of society? 
interestingly enough, in this picture, it was the man who was rejected and not seen as a good person. He could accept that he had spiritual need. He could accept that he hadn't done enough right. He could accept his brokenness. See, the thing about moralism is you can have a good life as a moralist. You can raise decent, well-obeying kids. You can pay your taxes. You can move up in the corporate ladder. You can be upright citizens. Many of the world's major religions have very culturally moral people. In fact, I know people in other religions who pray more than Christians that I know. But Paul tells us that our good deeds are like filthy rags. That they're not going to account for our sin or our brokenness. And then they're not going to help us in our temptation to use moralism to get closer to God. See, that's what this tax collector was doing in this story. He was kind of using his moral deeds as a counterbalance to lift himself up on a scale, a balance out against his sins. Literally, in ancient Egyptian art, there's depictions of going into the afterlife and people putting like your good deeds on a balance and your bad deeds on a balance and seeing which one wins. Almost like that's the route to heaven. If I could just get more good things on this side, that I would be more validated in this equation, that God would look graciously upon me. You can't deal with your sin in the power of yourself. I can't fix myself through myself or by myself. I just end here by saying that the hiding and the covering and using spirituality to avoid painful awareness or brokenness is a heavy burden to carry. To try to use spiritual things to avoid awareness of my own faults, that's a heavy burden to carry. You'll be running around church and all kinds of religious activities, getting all kinds of things done. People will think you're a spiritual giant. But if you're just doing that to balance out the scale, it's going to be a burden instead of a joy. My fourth point we need to find a new place of dependence for transformation to happen. We need to find a new place of dependence for transformation to happen. See, transformation will never start on the outside in. There's no ivory tower explanation or outward reformation that will change your heart. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, you might as well try giving a living heart to a marble statue. You could start by working on the outside of it with a mallet and a chisel to open it up and stick the heart in there. He goes on to say, to make a sinner pure in heart is as great of a miracle as if God made that statue live and breathe and walk. See, the Christian life, in part, is about denouncing the moral life as a way to please God. That I'm saved, that we are saved now in our needs, and we're living our good life is just another moral answer to the problem of sin. In Matthew 5, verse 20, it says, 
Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he's telling them, like, unless you live like a better life than Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, like, you're done. And that's not even all of it. Even then you're done. He's just painting a picture for them. It's kind of nice, though, at the end of the day to realize I don't have to fix myself. I don't have to fix my friends. I don't have to fix, uh, we don't have to fix our spouses. Somebody just got an elbow. (laughs) Please do that in the car. It's more effective when I'm done. (laughs) We don't have to fix the world. That's Jesus' job. But our job is to carry that message. The message of the gospel. The message that God is the one who transforms us. Paul has to remind the Galatians in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit that you're now trying to be perfected in the flesh? What he means by perfected in the flesh is that this group of people started out with an excitement of faith in God, and then they fell back into their old habits of trying to follow a bunch of rules to please God. Don't get me wrong today. I'm not saying sin is not egregious. What I am saying is it's so egregious that you're not going to overcome it by yourself. You are called to open your heart to Jesus and hear what he has to say. And even according to this text, ultimately, if you land in the side of moralism as a way to be right before God, it's offensive to his work. It's offensive to his work on the cross to think, well, Lord, I know you had to go and die, but really, I'm going to try to do this all myself. Like the God of the world didn't really have to die, like you got it, and he just chose to come down here anyway. I know we don't formally think of it that way, but sometimes it's a temptation to try to live out our life that way. It's the moral temptation. If you fall into that temptation, Christ will be no good to you in the work of transformation. If you go back to moralism, you'll be on your own. You'll be more like a Martha than a Mary. See, God used those good behaviors to grow you, just like you would train a child in coming up to have good behaviors. He's going to use those things for a positive. But there is a time to grow up from that when the Lord pulls away and all those habits start to feel like work and a burden and like they're overwhelming. That's the time when God is calling you on a journey to see the amazing things he's going to do with your life. Galatians 5, through 24 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
Patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against which there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. See, you don't need to have a program for character development when the Lord is swelling up your heart with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In fact, when he talks about ridding the world of the Old Testament law, that's kind of what he's talking about. I don't need to tell you not to steal from your neighbor if your heart is filled with these things. I don't need to tell you don't have lust in your heart when it's full of joy and goodness and faithfulness. I don't need to tell you to do your work well, to honor Jesus well, to give well, to love well. Christ brings change to your character based on your repentance and His filling your heart with those things. Revelations 3.17, he says, For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. This is a contrast. This is to continue the story of how the Galatians were, were living out their life. This is another verse in Scripture kind of pointing out the same things. These people were saying, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And Jesus says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These were moral people thinking I do well in society and God's blessed me. Jesus says you're blind and naked if you think that. If you try to live your life in your own power, God will let you, but you won't get very far. My last point in in light of all this, we will see God. We will see God. The Bible says life is like a vapor. Some of you guys know this better than me. Like it's like it was like yesterday I was in college. Holy moly. It wasn't yesterday. In light of that, we ought to have boldness and confidence in how we go to God. To be quite frank with you, to try to just follow all the righteous rules for life without following the most, the most righteous one will just be exhausting. It's Jesus that makes those changes rich and even desirable. It's Jesus that gives you love and joy and peace through those things. It's Jesus who will empower you to walk through those seasons of life where those things aren't as palpable. And it's Jesus who calls you into a greater sense of glory and dependence on Him. You're important enough to Him that He suffered 39 lashes across His back. And if that whip was a cat of nine tails, that's 39 times nine. If those who are pure in heart who are blessed, then those who are not pure in heart will be cursed. Jesus says, for you are either with me or you're against me. 
And it's not good to have a face-off with the creator of the world. For those of you who've grown up with good character and it served you well, but be careful that that isn't what you trust in, that it's God whom we must trust in. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. In light of this, in light of all this, what do we do? Reading through this scripture, I remember um, back in high school when I was in auto shop. A buddy of mine bought this old car and he brought it in and we were going to fix it. Uh, we started tearing it apart and it was like, Every layer we got to to take something and think we were just going to fix it a little bit, like it was completely broken. I mean, everything was broken. Like the alternator was broken. Turns out the engine was broken. You know, we knew the transmission was broken. It was like every single layer, the deeper we got, the more brokenness we found. And it finally got to the point where it was like, I don't think we can rebuild this. Like, like, all right, I mean, like, we could change a U-joint and maybe pop out a transmission, but, like, we got to rebuild the whole project. At which point, wisely, we decided to hand off the work, right? That old car is a lot like, like our lives, isn't it? That the, the deeper you get, the more layers of the life you get to, the more you realize, like, there's things you just can't fix. God's given you grace and empowerment to work on some layers of your life through his mercy. But there's stuff he's intentionally not going to empower you to fix in your life so that you learn to trust in him. Because that's where we're going one day, right? Is complete trust in his glory. Complete intimacy with him. C.S. Lewis said this about Christianity. One thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Cannot be moderately important. A couple things we can do in light of this is, number one is be single-minded. Right? The Apostle Paul was a pretty single-minded guy. I do everything for the glory of God. The great commandment is that you love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, not just 90%. Another thing you can do is take serious consideration of God's deep, deep love. One of the things that sin does to us from a very early age is it kind of gives us this belief that, you know, people really knew me. Maybe they wouldn't love me. If I told my, even my family, if I told them what goes on in my heart, so the things I think of, or even some of those closet things I struggle with, that may, they may not respect me or look up to me, that it would change our dynamic. I'd feel ostracized. Consider how great God's love is. And I would challenge you to test those waters first with him and then in our greater community. Third thing we can do is pray. We can pray. God God says, be prayerful over all things, especially though things of the heart, things of identity, things about passion, 
and things about how great His love and His glory is. I would challenge you today just to pray and ask Him, Lord, how deep is your love for me? Lord, how deep is your love for me? I pray this prayer, and I'll hand it off to you if you'd like to use it. Lord, create in me a clean heart that I may see you ever more clearly. Let me close us. Father God, we thank you for your passionate love that you have for us. That you relate that so clearly in your word, O oh God. You couldn't have shown it any more clearly when you sent Jesus to die for us on a cross. Help us to learn to love you back, Lord. To see and experience your mercy. To know that you love us more than we can ever imagine. To open you to you that you would change our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning you would reignite our passion in our life. And Lord, find that passion that you have for us in our hearts. In Jesus' precious name. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.